welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. Welcome in. This is the Tuesday Not So Deep Dive episode on Chit Chat Money. We have Brad Freeman on the show today, and it was your pick, and you picked Grow Generation. It is an interesting company that people might associate with the cannabis industry because that is what they're serving or part of the market that they're serving. But Brad, I got to ask, how did you find this company? Sure. So I, I talk a lot about the uh, the three multi-state operators, MSOs, or American growers that I own. Uh, just for full disclosure, Air Wellness, Cresco Labs, and Green Thumb Industries. So when I bring these up, a, a lot of the time, uh, the response from people is, well, what about ancillary plays? And it's this one, and then Innovative Industrial Properties, I think it's called, like IIPR or something like that. I'm not super familiar with that one. But those are the two names that come up for um, ways to approach the space in a more ancillary way instead of directly touching the plant. So thought it was probably time for me to check it out so I could give a more informed and more valuable opinion the next time somebody asks me about it. Yeah, we'll hopefully connect uh, part of the cannabis supply chain. I'll let Ryan introduce the company. But first, I have to talk about our sponsor for the Tuesday episode, Potential Multibaggers. The aim of Potential Multibaggers is to find stocks that can go up 10x over the next 10 years or compound at 26% per year. Potential Multibaggers is a service at Seeking Alpha. You've heard the head of the service, Chris, from Growth to Value is a pseudonym. He's been on the show before. They do tons of writing for the service. There's an overview of the week every Sunday with updates on all the picks, you know, markets in general, any news from the stocks in the Potential Multibaggers universe. There's a chat community where you can talk directly to Chris. He can kind of help you you know, understand what's happening. You can ask him questions if you're worried about stuff or if you have ideas and you can share doubts, successes with everyone in the portfolio or excuse me, any everyone in the community. And it's great. There's tons of other features that I'm not even mentioning here. But so if you want to become a multi, you can go to Seeking Alpha and look for From Growth to Value, Google Potential Multibaggers or go to at From Value on Twitter. We'll link it in the show notes. Ryan, do you want to introduce- Another good sales tip. Uh, another good selling point for us. Go listen to our show with him because he kind of sells the service uh, almost inadvertently by his analysis. Yes, exactly. And it helps us. Yes, exactly. If you want to hear his analysis in audio form, uh, we did a show with him on Fiverr, did about 45 minutes to an hour on that. And it was great. That's an example of the type of stuff you know he's looking at. If that's your style, this could be perfect for you. But Ryan, do you want to introduce Grow Generation? It's Grow, not Growth. Generation, right? It's grow. Generation. <laughs> it's grow generation. Growth generation sounds like a good investing omen, but yeah. Uh, anyway, so grow generation is the largest hydroponics supplier in the U.S. So I did have to go look up what hydroponics was, uh, and verticalroots.com defines hydroponics as a way to skip the soil, sub in a different material to support the roots of the plant, and grow crops directly in nutrient-rich water. Basically, it's all the necessary uh, tools, equipment, uh, products used to farm inside 
Am I, is that kind of a good way to put it? Without the sun and soil. Yeah. Uh, and so this includes selling items like organic nutrients or soils, but then also uh, items like lighting or equipment or a whole bunch of more like actual hard products. Not as They define it as either consumables or uh, non-consumables. And it's about a 40-60 split uh, on their, as far as products go. So it's pretty well-versed. I think they have a huge range of products. I'm not going to be able to get into all of them, uh, but that's kind of just the area that they're focused on. And so they do it through a whole bunch of different retail stores. I think they have 60 different uh, storefronts now. Uh, and the stores come in all different types and sizes. So it's not like one uniform layout type or one uniform size, like you might find with like a Starbucks or a McDonald's or a franchise like that. This is more, it, since they acquire a lot of the small individual shops and mold them into grow generation stores, it's very kind of, uh, it's like a melting pot of different retail stores. So it's all kind of coming together. And a lot of them actually serve uh, multiple functions. So some of the garden centers actually serve as warehouses or distribution or fulfillment centers. Uh, but the majority of their sales come from customers that are individual cultivators or indoor gardeners, that kind of thing. And then they also have commercial customers. And so the commercial customers make up about 25% of overall revenue. So think of a commercial customer as- well, Those are the ones that Brad, that you just mentioned, correct? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so like that, once a, if a commercial customer gets a cultivation license and they have to outfit their area with lighting, equipment, all that stuff, they'll come to Grow Generation and they have longer term contracts with them. They'll get uh, bulk pricing options. And then they also get like a representative from the company for them, like at all times. So they can always talk to a customer rep. Um, and so it's just, those are much bigger contracts. And like I said, that makes up about 25% of overall revenue, but it's not just physical retail. They also have two websites, which customers can order from. I think they were in the process of implementing uh, like buy online, pick up in store same day. I'm not sure if that happened yet. It said they were in the process of doing that on their last 10K, but the two sites are growgeneration.com and agrin.io. Uh, growgeneration.com, you can buy basically what you'd buy in store and have it shipped to you. But then agrin.io is more of a way for commercial customers to manage their purchases and logistics. They say in the 10K that it's a portal. So it's a little more holistic than just a simple e-commerce website. Uh, so you can like check out inventory and I don't know, it, whatever the commercial uh, buyers might need. I'm not sure what exactly all their needs would be. Uh, but it, that's, it seems like a small part of their uh, overall revenue anyways. A uh, little bit about the history. I'll try not to step in Brad's spot too much because there isn't too much about the company, but most of the history is around the founders. So it looks like it was incorporated in Colorado in 2014, both Darren Lampert and Michael Solomon, um, who Darren Lampert's the CEO today, and then Michael Solomon is the president. They were the ones that started it. Uh, they both have backgrounds that I don't think involve cannabis or uh, farming or even agriculture at all. So kind of, it seems like a new endeavor for them, but they're obviously seven years into this. So they, and they've proved that the, the company has grown since uh, first coming public in 2016. Um, There's been some doubters that we'll maybe talk about on the second half, but. Yeah, there has, uh, but to their detriment, I guess, like they grow generation is now we'll talk about it. They are profitable and they're doing fine. They have 60 stores now. I think they had 52 at the end of 2020. 
Um, and and they keep acquiring some. It's a very steady pace. Yeah. Yeah. Acquisitions are a part of their growth strategy. So just keep that in mind. And then uh, we'll talk about same store sales as well. But do you want to get into the industry? Yeah. I'll keep this one simple because it's very easy to analyze. There are 1,800 hydroponics focused stores in the United States. So you can look at that number and reference the total number of stores they have. So they're getting, you know, decent market share right now, but there's still a huge opportunity in front of them. The market size is apparently close to $10 billion right now, but it's expected to double over the next decade with the growth from cannabis in the United States and globally, and also the growth of vertical farming, which cannabis is almost kind of more of a sure thing. Vertical farming is more of the, you know, we did a show on app harvest. There's a lot of people doing ventures in that. uh, And it's kind of, it's unsure how big of that industry it's going to be, but they use stuff like this. Competitors, again, pretty easy to identify. There are the small chains that um, growth grow generation is trying to you know buy out, so they compete with them, but they're you know buying them. And there's Home Depot, and then there's also you know Lowe's and stuff like that, and there's also a little bit from Amazon and eBay. Very simple to understand. Brad, did you have anything else on this? Yeah, just one more uh, competitor to call out to be on people's radar, which is they're, they're pretty darn large. Is, is Scott's Miracle Grow? So they they've done a fantastic job at pivoting from this traditional um, gardening niche to taking advantage of the the great American growth story that that is cannabis. So another one to focus on, uh, but you did a good job covering the rest. The, is Scott's miracle Grow a wholesaler for these products or do they have stores like Grow Generation? So they're, they're B2B and B2C, just like GrowGen. Um, and it's my understanding that these large multi-state operators are pretty much um, most of them, um, it is fragmented. So there are exceptions are choosing between GrowGen and Scott's Miracle Grow at this point. Okay. That's good to know that I, I, I definitely missed that. And yeah, Scott's Miracle Grow, they did, they have made that big pivot to cannabis uh, over the next, the last few years. I remember hearing that, uh, but Brad, do you want to hit management and ownership more deeply? Absolutely. So CEO is Darren Lampert, uh, founding member of Lampert and Lampert. Um, so uh, an institutional fund. Um usually a good sign when somebody's uh, name is on the company, but uh, he was also a former portfolio manager. And other than that, uh, just rising right on up to the CEO of a, of a multi-billion dollar publicly traded company in GrowGen. Um, so not a ton of um, notable uh, experience beforehand before getting or, or starting this this pr- high profile endeavor. But, uh, but yeah, so the president is Michael Salomon, as Ryan mentioned, former chairman of Skinny Nutritional Corp. I, I had to look up what that was. Uh, again, not a ton of, of really high profile experience before stepping into this role. Um, the CFO is Jeff Lasher. He was the former CFO um, of Crocs. So a, a, a very notable uh, consumer consumer name. Um, most recently, the CFO of Corvin, a CPG company. And then the COO is also a former SVP at Crocs. So um, so quite the the talent pipeline from, from Crocs to Grow Generation, as I'm sure all of our listeners would expect. <laughs> yeah, it said something about the CEO here was uh, at the company called Pop Sockets. That's huge. Yeah. Pop Sockets. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, and then I'm sorry. Uh, in, in terms of ownership, so Salomon and Lampert both own roughly two and a half percent of the company. Um, insiders together own eight percent. So really not uh, n- not a huge insider presence. Um, BlackRock and Gotham are the two largest fund or institutional holders. BlackRock's got four percent. Gotham's got six percent. Um, 52% overall is held by institutions. Yeah. And they have a lot of ownership among the companies they acquire because the, they're using their share price kind of as 
part of the acquisition tool, if you look that their, their share count does go up steadily, and that's because they're trying to you know, do this roll-up strategy. If you remember, we've done a show on Ethereum in the past, and I know right now that company um, might not be, people you know, might cringe when they hear that name because of how that stock did, but it's a similar thing where they're trying to you know, roll up the different industries, and when their stock price is high, they're using that to their advantage, at least sometimes. Um, but I would definitely look at the the specific um, deals that they do. Brad, do you have something else? No, I was just going to say good addition. Thank you, thank you for mentioning that. I should have I should have added that in. Nah, no, no worries. I'll get to valuation. Market cap one point nine billion dollars. Ticker is GRWG. Uh, price to sales of five point seven. Price to gross profit of twenty point eight. So you can see that that their gross margins are not very high. Ryan will probably get into more of that on the earnings. Um, nothing really, they, they talk about adjusted EBITDA, but that's not something I particularly was worried about when looking at it. The, you can kind of see that their margins are going to be lower, you know, maybe 10%, 12% is kind of optimistic yeah. unless they can really expand that gross margin. Expect share count to steadily rise. I think one of the best or two best metrics to track here would be revenue and gross profit per share. Uh, the those over the last 12 months is probably the best the best metric here. Yeah, and I'd also maybe just add a number to that valuation. I believe they're guiding for somewhere around 50 million in current year adjusted EBITDA. Obviously, that's guidance. So that would peg them at about 40 times adjusted EBITDA, which once again, as an acquisitive company, we adjusted EBITDA is yeah. not necessarily the best proxy for true profitability. But I'll get into the earnings. Uh, so they had first half 2021 revenue of $216 million. That was up 182% year over year. Gross margin uh, grew slightly from the year before from, I think it was like 26 0.7%. I might be getting, I know it's in the 26s to 28.3% during this period. Uh, net income was $12.9 million. So they were profitable. Operating income was $17 million. Uh, they're doing about 1% operating cash flow margins. But part of that, the reason that they had low operating cash flow conversion compared to uh, Gap reporting was they had they kind of bolstered their inventory. They spent up a lot on uh, adding to their inventory. It's probably from the companies they acquired too. When they acquire a store, you know, there's got to be inventory there, stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, then they had twenty five and a half million in adjusted EBITDA for that period. Once again, take that with a grain of salt. And then Q two revenue growth on a per share basis was still about one hundred thirty one percent year over year. So really strong, even if you include dilution. Uh, and then they had 60% comp store sales growth in the first half of the year. So really, really strong top line numbers. They've proven that they that the economics do work. They aren't uh, astounding margins, but the, the, they can be profitable. And then they're guiding for about 455 to 475 million in full year revenue. Um, so yeah, all around really solid earnings. Uh, and that's probably why it's commanding sort of a premium valuation for what would look like a traditional retail business. Yeah, definitely look at the long-term stock chart. Uh, they've had quite the run in 2020 and 2021 has been, you know, pretty flat, but that, you know, they uh, kind of hit escape velocity. Uh, they could have been a meme stock or, you know, the cannabis stuff can get wild sometimes. So who knows if they got time to that, but Brad, do you want to wrap up the first half with balance sheet? Absolutely. Uh, so not as really not as bad as I was maybe um, expecting or, or fearing due to this whole public market roll up philosophy and all the inorganic growth they've had. Um, but not as bad as again, we, we talked about Ethereum a little bit, they're, they're in much better shape from a balance sheet perspective here. Uh, but 67 million in cash and equivalents, 
um, another 57 million in marketable securities that it does not include in these cash equivalents. Um, so total liquidity, I think you can put around 125 million. Um, it's got another 120 million in inventory and prepaid costs as, as Ryan was hitting on a little bit. It does have 108 million in goodwill. That's versus 62 million year over year. Again, public market roll up, ton of acquisitions, ton of M&A. Um, I think that can sort of be expected. Uh, it's not super alarming to me, but but is a number to, to keep an eye on for, for shareholders going forward, for sure. It's got negative 32 million in net accounts receivable. So um, it, it, it is funding some oper some operations with accounts payable. Um, 27 million, um, it has on the balance sheet and what it's called operating lease liabilities, but it, it's got very, very little long-term debt on the balance sheet. It is paying an 8.125% interest rate on that debt. But again, it's, it's very, very small. Only 3 million in stock-based compensation so far this year. That's versus 5.3 million um, year over year uh, to date. So for six months of the year, uh, it's got another 425,000 shares available in warrants for future issuance. But that's really, that's a roughly 1% dilution. Um, I, I'm sure, and, and they called this out several times throughout, throughout all of their SEC filings that they're gonna have to raise more cash in order to fund um, this, this, this really aggressive market share grab that they're, they're uh, embarking on right now but it is net income positive um, and, and balance sheet is not, not really a red flag like I was assuming it was going to be uh, heading into this episode. Yeah, they have a decent amount of cash to kind of go for the next, it depends how aggressive they're gonna be, but they have a decent amount of cash to maybe go for the next year or so, depending on how much cash they can generate. But balance sheet is very important here and the stock price can, you know, that's uncertain, but that can be very important as well when they do these acquisitions. But let's hit an ad break and then we'll get back and talk more about grow generation. It's for you. Credentials to advance, confidence to stand out in your career. At Regent University, you'll join more than 30,000 world changers making a difference in high demand fields. Pursue your bachelor's, master's, or doctorate online or on campus in Virginia Beach. Your degree from top-ranked Regent University is waiting. So is the world you will elevate. Say yes to your purpose and position yourself for a brighter future. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Regent.edu slash learn more. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Okay, welcome back. Next up, we have anecdotal evidence. Brad, I they had some shops in Michigan. I don't know if you've been to them, but no? Uh, I, I have not. Um, I, I will be totally candid with our, our listeners. That is my preferred elixir over over um over the the adult beverages and al the alcohol uh, space but uh, i do not really grow my own I, I don't really it's a pretty time consuming endeavor so yeah no no direct experience with grow generation no led lights no led lights on the property no no i i'm saving up for those at the moment but no led lights currently uh ryan i'm assuming nothing where they have no shops out here uh, or no they have one they have one in uh yeah, two that they, they they just bought. But um, I think they might be on the east side of the state. No, they're one. They were in uh, North Seattle. One was in North Seattle, so technically not too far from us. Oh, but I will get some anecdotal that. evidence. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'm in a market for a four hundred dollar LED light, but. <laughs> <laughs> 
We'll see. Uh, let's hit future growth opportunities, though. They got some very interesting things that I, I see here. So, Brad, what do you have? Yeah, mine is really straightforward. So, so just benefiting from this really large uh, legalization and regula- regulation uh, m- momentum that that our country is currently um, enjoying. So, Gallup, uh, the, uh, the most recent Gallup poll has public approval pushing seventy percent for broad scale legalization. It was under thirty percent when I was born in nineteen ninety seven. So more than doubled um, in our lifetime so far. We've got deep red states like Mississippi and South Dakota really, really convincingly and easily passing medical reform. So the, the whole partisan um, divide doesn't seem to be there like it used to in the past. So I just see more and more states continuing to legalize and that continuing to grow the total, total addressable market for GrowGen. Yeah, and can you explain for someone that might not know this industry at all, how that would benefit Grow Generation? Sure. So the the so because GrowGen is so involved in, in in the operations and the businesses of of these large multi-state operators, they're they're essentially just going to mirror the growth and and the expansion of of these of these companies as they enter new states. They are they're they're not going to vert or they haven't yet vertically integrated any of this fertilizer or or, or light or, or anything like that. So GrowGen is going to continue to be a trusted partner for them. In, in these new states, and they are going to need more stores and more capacity and more inventory to support more legal cannabis being sold. I mean, just thinking about states like New York, New York coming online for uh, recreational cannabis soon. Um, Texas is the governor talking about uh, allowing uh, veterans with PTSD to start using medical cannabis. That's the first inkling of, of any kind of willingness to legalize in Texas we've ever had. So the the larger um, the population footprint of Americans with with legal cannabis, um, the more demand there's going to be to support all, all, all of the all, all of the orders and, and, and all of the sales that are going to come. Right. And this may be a pun intended a little bit in the weeds here, but what so the like marijuana industry or cannabis industry, it takes really precise like uh, water stuff and uh, you know, like light, right? So it's not like something you can just throw outside and have a whole range. The conditions, yes, the growing conditions have to be precise. Thank you, Ryan. Is that correct? Or do you? Uh, yeah, there are, cannabis plants are extremely sensitive to, to the timing of lighting. Um, they're extremely sensitive to phosphorus and, and nitrogen um, concentration levels in soil. They're very sensitive to water. You, you can, anyone pretty much can grow cannabis. Um, but if I try to, it would really suck compared to um, what these what these broad scale uh, growers who have mastered the process are, are, are doing. So yeah, uh, it, one of the concerns I'm sure we'll hit on maybe later in the show is that a lot of people think of cannabis as a commodity, but but one one strain, one one type of uh, of genetic uh, identity for for a strain can be extremely different um, from both a price point and a cost perspective for from one grower to the next and from one state to the next because. Um, the, the quality of these processes vary so so broadly across uh, across operations. Like just for example, Air Wellness just purchased a company called Tahoe um, Tahoe Hydroponics, I think it's called in Nevada, and they said one of the core reasons they bought it was so that they'd have access to all of these master growers that that Tahoe has on its roster. So it's really an intellectual property grab almost um, in a, in a consumer packaged goods space. It's, it's pretty interesting. So I think about it more like. Um, like fine wine and how and how, uh, and how di- there, there's different tastes and, and, and different preferences. Um, so I, I don't see cannabis as a pure commodity, but, but yeah, just that's probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but that's kind of where I see it. No, that's a great overview. And it shows why your hydroponic equipment, you want that quality product, you want the high quality brand that you trust. But 
Ryan, do you want to talk about yours? What do you have here? Uh, private yeah. label? Well, yeah, private label, but there's something I was kind of thinking about that maybe that this is kind of speculation on my part and I might be wrong to think this way, but would it be better to buy storefronts in the States that haven't legalized it yet? Because you're still doing like vertical farming. That's not illegal. So would those be lower cost? And then as they get uh, legalized, you can kind of migrate into the other products as well. I feel like yeah. you, you maybe I'm, maybe it's better to just wait, but I imagine you're still getting stores for cheaper uh, prior well, to legalization. Brad, you probably know the best on this. No, I, I mean, it's a really interesting thought. So the largest American grower, it, um, the name of the company is Cureleaf, and they've been they've been purchasing grow houses in, in states that are kind of prepping and gearing up for legalization, but haven't yet done it. And, and they're doing it for that very reason, because the real estate's so much cheaper uh, before this regulation hits. So it's definitely an, an interesting concept to consider. And there's weird states that are embracing the growing, like Oklahoma is a huge hotbed for this, which seems strange. You would not have expected that. Um, but there's also, and then there's also the medical twist, right? Where some states, a lot of states have legalized medical and that can be a huge market as well. But Absolutely. And, and I, I think um, I, 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 it's interesting because so re recreational cannabis, why are people smoking recreational cannabis? And it's generally um, mood and anxiety or, or just to be put in a, in, a, in a better place. So a lot of the executives and the CEOs see this kind of medical recreational divide being torn down over time so that uh, cannabis is, is really, it's seen as more of a therapeutic uh, um, for, for cater towards sleeping or cater towards uh, increasing your appetite or, or lower anxiety or things like that. So it, I, 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 that, that's not super important, but I'm, I'm personally fascinated to see how the medical recreational labels change over time. Because I mean, in the state where I am, um, when I, I'll, I'll just give a story. When I was an undergraduate, um, when my friend was getting a, a medical card, he told me he walked into the store or he walked into the doctor's office and it was, it was a doctor with a, a button down and, and all the buttons on his button town were unbuttoned. So all the chest hair <laughs> was hanging out. They were listening to Bob Marley. They were just having a great time. They asked two questions and he walked out with, with the paperwork. So it was extremely relaxed and extremely easy. Um, so I think that just feeds into the fact that um, the divide between recreational and medical isn't as pronounced as people think. And, and when the, the South Dakotas of the world also pass recreational cannabis and, and when the rest of the state holdouts um, kind of move on from holding out, that'll, that'll come down. All right, Ryan, do you, anything else in private label? Yeah, yeah so private they have private label brands. Um, I believe it was according to the 10 K, I think 16 different stock keeping units. And a majority of those products are the consumables. So like soil and, uh, nutrient stuff. Um, and so in the first half of 2020, uh, less than 1% of sales came from the private label products in the first half of 2021, 7% of their sales came from that. So it's growing rapidly and it does have higher margins. I don't think it was specifically broken out, but they said it would boost margins. The, the more that uh, private label outpaces traditional sales. All right. Yeah. That, that makes sense. I mean, that's relating that to their uh, overall sales growth. I mean, private label, what is the heck growing like to a thousand percent? It's from a low base, but that's impressive. And maybe that'll have margins over time. Uh, I'll hit mine vertical farming. So this equipment is also important for that industry. It's not just for cannabis. It's more for gardening in general. So we did the show on app harvest and that looked like a hard business to make money in, but 
it's because they had to spend a lot of money on stuff that could be, you know, from a wholesaler uh, or a commercial, you know, company like grow generation. And if people are going to spend a lot of money building these things, there's a potential, you know, for consistent customer base for grow generations products. That's a bit more speculative, but if vertical farming really takes off, that could be a huge, huge potential well, for grow like, generation and, and all the hydroponic sellers. And I feel like people are rooting for vertical farming to work. Um, and typically when that happens, uh, we'll get some few billion in SPAC dollars. Yeah. You get government help probably with that as well. So I imagine that it's, it's kind of more of an inevitability. <laughs> Just some nice, some nice subsidies flow into app harvest. We, the real profits will flow to grow generation. That'd be nice. Um, all right. Highlights and lowlights, Brad, what do you like? What do you don't like about grow generation? Sure. Highlight really impressive. Um, surprisingly impressive blend of growth. Uh, some of it was inorganic, but like Ryan was talking about 66% same store sale growth is really impressive. Uh, but that blend of, of elevated growth and profitability, um, not super common in, in equity markets for 2021 and not super common for a company this early on in its expansion curve and, and its maturity. Um, but for low light, uh, and this this might be a little contradictory to some people, but there's very little barrier to entry for the ancillary cannabis plays. One of the reasons why I own the companies that touch the plants is because we're regardless of this opportunity being so large and, and so quickly growing, um, the, the the large consumer packaged goods and pharmaceutical companies can't, they can't get involved right now. They can't touch the plant because it's federally illegal. And that's creating this, this kind of insulation that this, this artificial competitive moat allowing the, the growers that I, that I own and some of the other ones to build these massively profitable businesses so that when it, it, the time finally does come where, um, someone like a Unilever can finally get into the space. It's going to be through M&A because these these players are going to be so built out and so mature and so developed that it's not going to make any sense to try and organically compete with them. So that same that same barrier to entry doesn't exist for growth generation. They don't touch the plant. Um, they don't do anything federally illegal at this point in time. So anyone with with which with storefront, anyone with deep pockets can look at this opportunity and say, I want a piece of it. And, and that's already starting to happen. So, so that, that, that's the concern um, is the moat, not to use a cliche, but that's where I see it. No, we love the cliche of the moat. And I think that is a big <laughs> question here. Where is the, where's the rub on the moat? And I, I mentioned that um, if you're looking at that same store sales number, 60% is super strong and it looks great, but it was coming off a really weak base from Q2 2020. They expect, yeah. I believe, the slowdown to go down to like 20% or even lower than that. I think it was either 10% or 20%. That is still really good. Same store sales growth, but not nearly as good as 60%. All right, Ryan, what are yeah. your highlights and lowlights? Well, my highlights are that comp store revenue uh, has been, even though it was 60% this quarter or th- this first half of the year, uh, that even if it has a big pullback, that's still strong, say it's 10 to 20% somewhere in there. That's really good. Uh, and I like the commercial relationships. I think they said they have thousands of those, um, low lights for me though. Part of it is, I don't know if this is the beginning of a secular trend or if they got a big boost in farming due to COVID. I know that, uh, if you go and I'm going to talk about this here. So Hindenburg released a short report a year ago and they've been, they have been wrong so far uh, if you're looking at the short-term stock price. Uh, but on that, they they had calls with a lot of the representatives at some of these grow generation stores. And those, those representatives said 
we've never had volume like this. We've never had this many people coming into the store. It's uh, COVID for some reason was like a big spark for us. People then, trying to wanted to do stuff like that. Okay. And then, but I mean, 2021, that's kind of, it stayed almost weird. Yeah. And so that's the other part is, but you look at like vertical farming, you look at the uh, growth of cannabis. It feels like those are more secular trends. And then, the, the the real low life for me is the management woes. So if you read that Hindenburg report, I know some people will probably shrug it off, but there is a lot of involvement uh, from management with organized crime. Uh, the, the That's the never good. <laughs> president and co-founder, his old company, Skinny, Nutri- Skinny Nutrition, uh, sold fruit flavored zero calorie water and they went bankrupt in 2013 amidst a bunch of director resignations because there was like undisclosed lawsuits. And so he doesn't really have a very rosy background. Um, and so just some of the management background stuff uh, makes me a little wary. Yeah. And what's weird is when I, I didn't know about the Hindenburg report and I read the conference call and kind of read their letters and they seem very confident because they get straight to the point. They tell it kind of like it is, they're not trying to beat around the bush and they're, you know, they're saying what they're going to do. And I thought it was really, it sounded really competent, but that is the worry. Whenever you're reading a conference call, people in the executive roles are there because they're the best salesman in the world or salesperson in the world. Um, they can really convince you some things and you got to really look at that Hindenburg report and see, all right, do I disagree with what, they, what they're saying here? Can I prove that what they're saying is true or not? Are they just making some assumptions? All that stuff. It isn't, it isn't a deal breaker because some of the stuff was like slightly detached from them. Like they hired someone who had a speculative background and stuff like that, but it's worth reading if you own the stock. Yeah, for sure. All right. I'll hit my highlights. Uh, I think, you know, the industry is tailwinds are nice. It's niche enough, I believe to build a customer base outside of the home Depot and Lowe's core crowd where you couldn't, you know, Home Depot and Lowe's, they both have incredible competitive advantages where you're starting up a home improvement retailer. I mean, no one even tries that anymore. It's insane. But with this little niche, Home Depot does this type of stuff, but it's it's a large enough market where a, someone like a grow generation, and they, I don't know how many SKUs they would have at a store, but I'm assuming it's like 100 or 200 or something like that more, more. or more. Um, Home Depot is not going to be really carry all that. You'll, you'll have all the specialty brands for cannabis farming, all that stuff. And like Brad was saying earlier, you need very specific, high quality products. I think that is a potential for them to build out this niche compared to Home Depot or Lowe's, who people are probably thinking about as the big competitor. Scott's Miracle Grow as well. I guess we should talk about them too. Low lights, though, market opportunity is uncertain, in my opinion. Um, and I would like to have them acquire companies with cash from operations because using the stock now feels good, but that's not a guarantee it's going to stay this high. And then if they have to go to the debt markets, um, they would have to take out high interest loans. So a relatively high interest loans, it sounds like it'd be like eight to 10%, something like that. So that's not right. great for me. All right. We, we should probably kind of speed through these last two here. What's Brad, what's your bull case? Sure. Sorry. I've been talking a lot. I'll, I'll go quickly. All right. um, so m- the bull case, I, I don't see this as a uh, massively scalable business for these individual growers and individual gardening projects. I see that as more of kind of like a, a, a medium-sized hobby uh, niche. But if this can become the go-to ancillary crop supporter for all major MSOs, all major multi-state operators, I think that's the bull case. And I think those B2B contracts can be extremely lucrative and extremely durable. Um, so that's what I'll be looking for. 
Yeah. I'd almost rather have them, even if they have to do like bulk pricing discounts, I'd almost rather have those commercial lock-ins than uh, selling to that more uh, single operator crowd uh, or the little individuals. Um, and there's not very many single operators. I mean, you have to get the license. So the single operators are, uh, they're, they're wink, wink, you know, what are you doing this for? Um, planting some tomatoes, you know, <laughs> that's, that's, I mean, that's exactly what came to mind when I read like some of the stuff, but anyway, uh, my bull case is that this is the two secular trends we talked about, which is uh, multi-state operators uh, in cannabis and then vertical farming. Uh, th- those kind of help uh, push growth for the company. And then they're able to sustain comp store sales growth of around 10 to 15%, somewhere in there. Uh, if they're able to do that, if they're able to continually acquire companies and do so out of their cash flow, they're, they're in a really good spot. I think this could make a pretty good investment. Yeah, I kind of had to put it into some store count numbers. I think if they get to 150 stores, you know, you can get to high single digit comps sustained, uh, you know, which would be a lot lower than it is now, but still really, really good compared to almost all other retailers. Uh, if they can get to 10% cash flow margins, which if you look at their gross margin, that's probably right around where they're going to have to be at. And then a share count doesn't, you know, skyrocket. It has grown a lot, but remember, I would look at gross profit per share you know, cash flow per share, revenue per share, stuff like that. That would probably, you know, if they do all those things, 150 stores, sustained comps, and they get to those cash flow margins, that probably adds up to good stock performance, especially when you look at their guidance for at least this year for revenue, that's going to slow down a lot. They're not going to grow at hundred percent forever, but. Uh, yeah. I'd also assume some multiple compression. For uh, sure. I mean, right now, if you think 10% cash flow margins, they're trading at like 55, 60 times. I mean, no stock trades at that at maturity. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Bear case, Brad, what do you have? Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I do sort of agree with Brad that this is niche enough to kind of uh, distract away from big boys trying to compete, but still Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, Walmart, all these companies, if they want to, if they see this opportunity is attractive enough, they can dedicate resources. They can dedicate a lot more than $120 million and um, to, to build this opportunity out. So that's, that's where I see it um, as developed players realizing how how incredible this opportunity truly is and taking market share. Yeah, and they can they they can easily be the low cost provider if they want to. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. grow generation will have to if okay if Home Depot and Lowe's try to go after this opportunity really strongly, grow generation is going to have to build like some uh, their brand really strong because the only way to differentiate yourself is to show that like, all right, you, you buy from us, you have the most high quality products. That's tough to do. They probably could, but it's not a guarantee. And that, that definitely is a risk. All right, Ryan, what's your bear case? Um, my, my bear case is, and um, I actually did not dig into the acquisition specifically. I assume these acquisitions are being made at least partially or fueled partially by stock. It's a mix. Yeah. Usually, um, but they have so many, I can't remember all of them. It was usually a mix. So, uh, I think right now they have a pretty low cost of equity and, and they're able to acquire with that premium valuation. Um, but if that, that, that is not a sustainable advantage. And if that subsides, you have a very Ethereum like situation where you then have to start uh, buying these with either cash flow or 8% cost capital in your debt. You might be able to get better rates than that if you have uh, cash flow at that point, but um, it, it just becomes a very different world in a bear market for, uh, uh, for them acquiring other companies. Um, and the other part, I mean, I mean that's really it. If uh, I guess the only nuance, I think Ethereum's a decent comp here, but the only nuance is that you have good comp store growth. 
Um, and so far they're operating in composite. So. Yeah, that, that's always looking better than a Tyrion. Um, yeah, my bear case financing their growth is going to prove harder than we might think. It's been very easy right now. Uh, and I don't think a retail roll-up deserves a premium valuation. If we're looking at see-through cash flow margins, which again, you have to discount again because they're not going to generate cash for like the next two or three years if it's at like 55, 60 times. The, you know, I don't know. What does something like this deserve to trade at? Look at what retailers trade at at maturity. However, I don't know. <laughs> the some some the best retailers have been some of the best investments of all time. So you have to counter that with that. True. Home Depot, Walmart, Tractor Supply, Scott Starbucks, all, all, all of them, all of them. All yeah. The, in the early days, they look rough because of the cash they burn. But I mean, they they become, I don't know. They're few and far between, but the diamonds in there. Uh, can do really, really well for you. All right, let's wrap things up. More or less interested, Brad, what do you think? Uh, I got to go less interested. And I, I will preface this by saying I do understand why people who want exposure to the space uh, own the company. But if I'm going to have exposure to the space, I want that artificial regulatory moat that I was talking about earlier. Um, and, and honestly, the, the names that I own are qu more quickly growing. Uh, they, they sport 55% gross profit margins. Um, and they're way cheaper. So that's, I, I don't know why I would divert any sector or sector attention or concentration um, to an ancillary play here. That's kind of where I see it. Um, so less interested. All right, Ryan. I, optically, I like the idea of choosing the picks and shovels provider for the canvas space. Um, I, I like that going into it, but the management woes are concerning for me. Um, and it, it isn't necessarily super cheap. Uh, so I apologize. This was something uh, we got some tweets uh, that said like, "Oh, you're gonna love it," and so I, I'm sorry to let you down, uh, but I'm gonna go less interested. Yeah, I'll go more interested. Yeah, uh, there we go. One, one out of three, I guess. The management thing I didn't read about it, so maybe it's worse than I'm assuming, just because I kind of read the headline on the Hindenburg thing. I didn't know about it until right before we recorded, so that could change my opinion. And the valuation right now is really not something I. I think is, I don't know, seems very overvalued to me, but again, that could be wrong. But what keeps me more interested and maybe puts it on the watch list is the fact that a good retailer in a niche can provide strong returns and durability. I mean, there's again, like I mentioned before, some of the best business of all time. If you establish that niche, you establish that brand, if it can be the Home Depot like or the tractor supply, I guess it's probably a better comp because they're more specialized. If they can do that for hydroponics, I think that's, it could be a great business the, um, or great, great stock performer. The other thing to think about is it's very easy to get caught up in the top line growth and especially the comp store growth, but it's also a pretty easy comp right now. So I, moving forward, pay attention to organic yeah. or, uh, organic growth or comp growth because um, it's, it's not going to stay at 60%. I, I imagine it would, not <laughs> it would stay be, at if it, if it if, does, that would be, then we're all, then we're wrong. Oh, that <laughs> would, I, I don't know how you do that with the same sizes of the stores. I mean, that's just insanity. I don't know how you are putting that much through. Uh, you'd have a lot of people changing inventory, uh, but yeah, I guess that'll do it. We're one for three. Sorry for the person that's that predicted we go three for three. <laughs> um, yeah. 
It's a, yeah, sorry. You can still, it's all right. That means the opportunities there yes. for, for, uh, maybe, two. maybe some people just don't understand it. Uh, that's us, but what's the stock for next week? Yeah. I'm going to make us eat some vegetables. We're going to do a home builder, uh, Lennar corporation, Lennar. not exciting. Uh, but yeah, Lennar corporation, been a good performing home builder in the last decade. We'll study that, see how they've succeeded, stuff like that. Brad, you have anything else before we wrap up? Yeah, just just to the person who was expecting us all to love it, please please say neener 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 when it doubles and triples and quadruples over the next couple of years. I I, I, I expect you to gloat because, um, because yeah, this is not really, yeah we don't we're not shorting it um, if it does well. Yeah. We hope we hope any shareholders do well. We never we never want anyone to lose money. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all for listening. Remember, none of us are financial advisors. Anything we say on this show is not formal advice or recommendation. Ryan and I are general partners at Arch Capital. Arch Capital clients may hold securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.